This episode is brought to you by Little Paddlers Swimming Academy. Little Paddlers was founded during the reign of Autarch Agitor, using the same instruction techniques perfected by the Order of Seekers of Truth and Penitence to ensure that they didn't lose any apprentices during their periodic swims in the odorific Guile River. And since then, they've force-marched thousands of little malingerers to perfect skills that made the Torturers Guild the top-rated swimmers they're primarily known for today. And right now, when our listeners sign up their ankle biters for a series of introductory procedures lessons, they'll get a handy depth sensor so, after a few simple trigonometric calculations, your drowning youth vampire will be able to tell which way it is to the surface. Go to their website and sign up your grumpy broodling and use the promo code RERED, one word. And thank you, Little Paddler Swimming Academy, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we've read these books. We're going to try and understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Our first episode has been out for about a week or two weeks when we're recording this, and we wanted to say thank you to those people who listened already. Uh, We didn't know how long it would take people to get around to it, but after just the first uh, episode or first two episodes, I guess, if the first one really counts and one chapter, then we've already gotten a lot of good feedback. So thank you very much. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. One person has already um, given us a review on iTunes. A five-star rating from a listener named uh, Marble Fortress. And we will read reviews on here if you leave something for us, both good or bad, but we're going to save that for the end because we know you want to get to the good stuff right now. Yeah. Also, if you do have other questions or concerns or errata, uh, which I think is a good word, especially since on Lexicon Earthus, that Michael Andrew Drews, you published errata sheets that we certainly want to hear about your own errata notes that you want to give us. And we already have one. We've already got a possible correction. When you feel so much you're right, you may discover that you're wrong, 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 wrong. This one came in on Facebook. Yeah, it was uh, Ian C. Smith. Ian Smith wrote after some thanks and said he was enjoying it, said, hope it's okay to start with a disputation. In the discussion of the first chapter, you suggest, if I've understood you right, that there's an inconsistency in the numbers of volunteers described as being at the gate because of the line, and there were only two left, being followed shortly after by a description indicating there were still several volunteers present. However, I'm pretty sure the first reference is actually to two lanterns, not two volunteers. Hmm. Wow. So we had put this forward as the second time that uh, Severian gets something wrong, perhaps, in his memory. Well, you've uh, put yourself out there, Ian. Let's, um, you're setting yourself up for some universal scorn and approbation right in front of everybody. So let's take a look at the text. Let's see here. The man... With the key, had dropped the lantern when he ran after Iada, and there were only two left. In the dim light, the volunteer looked stupid and innocent. I suppose he was a laborer of some kind. Hmm. 
I think maybe he's right. He may well be. There's a question <laughs> of reference there, but when it, you know, if it was just the sentence that said, then there are only two left, that leaves it vague. But then but when the, the next sentence is right, in the, the in, in the dim light, yeah, yes, okay, all right, well done. That's one point. One point in favor of the people who want to make sure that Severian's memory is perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now we just got to prove that the draught roach was a typo and that all the other things going it's all on. falling apart. Uh, <laughs> but but no, thank you very much for that. We do want to make sure that when we're we're saying things, we're not misreading the text or sort of getting in our own little echo chamber between the two of us. So thank you very much. And if you do have bigger questions or concerns or disagreements for important reasons about, you know, bigger points that we make too, both from the sentence level to larger issues, we would love to hear it. As it turns out, I would like to get in line. So I didn't catch this for some reason, but... It is not uh, St. Ignatius that referred to the Severians, the spinoff Gnostic sect that I had come upon in Eusebius's The History of the Church. It was St. Irenaeus in his work Against Heresies. Gotcha. That's just small stuff. I also managed to say that Iada was not an apprentice because he was too young, and this is ridiculous since Iada is the apprentice Severian chose as his second when he became captain of the apprentices. I suppose it is possible that a child younger than six is not officially an apprentice since he has no duties, but I don't know what a boy like that would be called. Maybe a little kid or more likely by others, he'd be called a little apprentice. Good. And one other thing that someone brought up, not necessarily correction, but in addition, uh, Christopher Merwin also on Facebook had mentioned that there was not just a Saint Severian, but actually an Emperor Severian in late Roman history, or not Sever, not Severian, but Severus. And fits perfectly that there is a character who's both a saint and an emperor that can also uh, have his name connected to chopping heads off. So yeah, yeah. so thanks for the addition, because I had not thought of that one at all. I want to mention one other thing that came up when we spoke with Nigel Price, actually, just this last week, who is one of the co-runners of the website Alton's Library. He's going to be our first special guest. So that's coming up for Chapter 6 and Master of the Curators. Something to look forward to. But he mentioned that resurrection can also literally mean grave robbing. And resurrection men is kind of a common name for grave robbers, a traditional name, too. So there is a literal resurrection that does happen in that first chapter. You can make those kinds of comments on Facebook, on Twitter, um, or you can always email us. We do have an email, rereadingwolf at gmail.com. No dashes, no hyphens, just rereadingwolf at gmail.com. If you don't want to do it publicly, feel free to send us an email there, and we'll get back to you or mention you here. (laughs) Well, I think that was awesome. Chapter 2, Severian. Can we talk about something before we begin this chapter? Absolutely. So you want to talk about Nessus? That's that's another odd name for anyone to call the city. Nessus, yeah. Get into the the name of the city and what city it might actually be related to. I mean, so first of all, we could assume that it's just a science fiction city. Um, You know, it's far, far in the future. It might not have some connection. We also know that there are plenty of things that are connected to actual places. It is a name of a centaur in mythology. He was killed by a poisoned arrow by Hercules, and so his blood poisoned his own shirt, and then he tricked Hercules' wife into getting Hercules to wear it, which killed him. Incidentally, Centaurus was not a centaur, but a deformed man who lived among horses and had sex with them. 
he sired the race of centaurs. That is a mythical version. That's not some later rationalization of the story. And Severian's time-traveling robot friend, Jonas, said that the city was called that because the water was poisoned. Before that, it was called something else, but if he knew what that was, he didn't say. Now, first of all, I, I'm, I'm very unsatisfied by that connection. It's okay, but it doesn't really measure up to what I'm used to from Wolf. I think the centaur imagery is really good just because it's a, it's a hybrid and it's a mishmash of all kinds of things. And also kind of, a, you know, especially with that version that you just told of, of how the centaur came about, it's kind of a perversion. It's a, you know, and it's a, it's a degenerate form. But, but so it really works that what we have here is sort of a society that is now kind of a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of things that people have forgotten their meaning. They've forgotten the reasons behind a lot of the things. And they've still got all these traditions um, that are kind of a mess. <laughs> and I think it, it works for that. It also doesn't connect to any sort of real geography. I would say most of us would want to try and figure out, you know, where this actually is, um, or at least could be. And we get, you know, we get the the river, we get directions with north and south. We We know that we're in the southern hemisphere somewhere, or at least that, you know, what they're calling north and south. And, and the way that it's, you know, colder to the south and warmer to the north. There have, I mean, people have said Byzantium, people have said, um, I think, was it, uh, was it uh, Michelangelo Jerusi who said Madagascar? Was that who said that? That was me. I was joking about it. I could have swore he did a, a joke about that somewhere on the earth list. But, but uh, I think the consensus is that it is Buenos Aires. I think Jonas's story is a, uh, kind of a false etymology that he put together just the way the reader would. He, he knew that Nessus was connected to mythology. He knew it had, there was poison. He saw that the water that ran through Nessus was poisoned. So he, he put a few things together and, and that's just the way I would have put together something like that. Oh, it probably has something to do with the poison. The myth by itself doesn't necessarily point to a particular place, though, does it? I mean, we can get that name. No, it's, I mean, well, it for one be... thing, it's in Greece. It's, it's, it's not a place name. It's a, it's a person's name. Yeah. So that that by itself, you know, it can ha still have that meaning and still be Buenos Aires. So that's right. that's not. Right. Exactly. Name. The preponderance of theories is that it is Buenos Aires. Uh, Buenos Aires Nessus. That I wouldn't necessarily be convinced of that personally. I mean, it's, it's not bad, but I'd probably want more. The reason it is in South America, right? Every, the preponderance of understanding is that it's in South America mm -hmm. because of certain South American cultural references. Mm -hmm. and not the least of the title soup everyone is, is drinking, mate. Or tea, yeah. Right. And, and also, uh, you know, the Argentinian National Public Library that was headed by Jorge Luis Borges, uh, who... Uh, I accept Master Alton of Chapter Six is an allusion to him. That all kind of fits together very nicely. But the reason that I'm convinced is, frankly, the river that runs through Nessus, the Gaiol. Gaiol. The river that runs through Buenos Aires is the Uruguay River. Gaiol, Uruguay. 
because if you have if you accept that Buenos Aires is Nessus, then the Guayo fits perfect for the Uruguay River, and now you have c- completed your crossword puzzle. And there's more to it than this, but let me say first of all that I'm I'm probably like everyone else that when you hear about Great Big River, I usually just assume South America it's the Amazon, um, and I, I think that's the easy connection, the, the sort of obvious one. But when you actually look at a map, like James did, you find some other things. <laughs> yeah, the river, the river that flows north away from Buenos Aires is the Uruguay River, the Guayo. And once you know that, then you can follow that river up north to the little town of Salto Station, that is Saltus, where Severian's in uh, Claw the Conciliator. And since Saltus is about 35 miles, 56 kilometers north of the northernmost part of Nessus, we can see that if Buenos Aires is Nessus, then it has traveled up the Uruguay River about 300 miles as far as Nueva Escocia, Argentina. Jonas explains that the city is constantly moving north because the wealthy are seeking pure water. And no, I haven't identified Thrax at this point. (laughs) But one thing I do like about that is that it helps connect with um, the amount of time that's passed a little bit more. Because one thing that that I think is always problematic about saying Nessus is Buenos Aires is that we're already seeing, you know, civilization layered on top of civilization, layered on top of civilization and the minds that come later. And the amount of time that's passed means for me that it'd be really hard to think that, you know, where an exact city is now would have to be identified with another one. So to, you know, to make a sort of one-to-one correlation between Nessus and Buenos Aires seems almost too simple for the kind of stuff that Wolf's (laughs) talking about. Like he seems more like at this amount of time and the way that he's thinking about it, you know, the cities that we would recognize now would have been layered over a long time ago. But if we're assuming that at least general geographical things could still be around, then that river kind of makes sense. And then you can move the towns up and down the river. And the fact that Saltus is there, maybe Wolf was looking at a map and thought, oh, that's a good name for, for where a mine was. And that's not a, and that's pretty clever, actually. He didn't just come up with some uh, messed up version of Buenos Aires. He managed to have some real word that the city could be named after or or misnamed after. So I like that. I like that quite a bit. Now we will. Do you want to talk about it now? We can, we can sort of put a hint because you're going to do this now. Yeah, there's no, no, no law that right. says it has to come at the end. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, cue that curiositous earthless music. Curiositas earthus. Alice K. Turner, a former early earthlister editor of fiction at Playboy magazine, who uh, passed away unexpectedly about four years ago, never backed off her belief that Nessus is Alexandria in Egypt. Her reasons were St. Catherine was a patron saint of Alexandria and the great library there. And finally, that the main guilds, the Madachin, the Bear, witches, etc., seemed to her to refer to to specific ancient pharaohs. She admitted that the, the that last one was a little far-fetched, and she also acknowledged that her mapping might more likely reflect her own psychology than the state of mind uh, that Wolf had when he wrote the book. But she suggested that the continent of Africa moved north and the Mediterranean Sea had dried to a river, 
flowing south and east from the Alps. And then she had us imagine that the entire area migrated south. And she imagined that Severian's she imagined that Severian's whole journey northward goes from Alexandria to Switzerland. She uh, she liked the sorcerer's village in to be in Albania. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to put a link to her explanation from the Earth List in the show notes. The lesson here is that finding yourself on the Curitas Earthus shelf is a position of significant pedigree. <laughs> yeah. If you or if that name's not familiar to you and you were never a, a member of the Earth List or only kind of dabbled or were a recent addition when very little's going on there, it's well worth your time just to go back and search for her her posts just because there's so much. What was what was her? Alga, Alga was her okay. I was gonna Alga. ask I, told, I had momentarily forgotten her yeah. long son nickname. Yeah. Being an early lister she had a long son uh nickname. She never liked the Nessus Buenos Aires link. She dropped off the list. I don't know if you remember, but she dropped off the list with the publication of the final volume of The Wizard Knight due directly to Wolf's rather graphic description of how, in a fairy world, a marriage between a giant and a human woman might work, which uh, does happen in the stories, especially the Germanic stories in which that fantasy world was taking place. But it was just too much for her. As I recall, her last words were something like, that's it, I've had it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a sort of a hard lesson, I feel like, to be learned about some of the more difficult things that Wolf did, problematic, you know, representations and with women that we're going to definitely talk about in more detail later on. but yeah, so that being said, she was, I feel like she was one of the most perceptive and creative members of the Earth List. She sailed a very nice line between people who, who wanted to read everything literally and people, well, that like me, that tend to spin theories as easily as just talking. Right. <laughs> we also, in this chapter, I think it's fair to say, get all of the clues to really figure out pretty distinctly that the tower is a rocket ship of some kind of spaceship. Um, and, and I think he talks about the bulkhead, in fact, right in the same, yeah, the same sentence where he names the Madison tower. Um, he talks about an iron bar of iron sticking out from the bulkhead. Um, he, he also has, uh, when he has his vision, um, when he's in the river later on, he's talking about with lying. master Malrubius and the spoon. Yep. And he, Yep, it's banging on on um, the metal walls, and he talks about thinking that he's in his in his uh, bunk. And all the windows are called and doors are called portals and ports, right? Portals, yeah. So that's no one ever um, went to the head, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. How long did it take you? How many times did you read it before you finally said, "Wait a minute"? <laughs> I think it was the second time I read it when it clicked for me. Yeah. So the very first time I read it, I thought it was fantasy because of the cover, and I didn't get very far before I quit. I hadn't, wasn't paying attention, but the second time I remember when I actually did start paying attention, I can't remember if it was the bulkhead or the ports, but I remember one of those two made me click and sort of sit up and pay attention and start looking yeah. at things after that. It's his language that he has a way of describing things that if you saw them, they would, you would, you'd recognize them immediately, but the way he describes mm-hmm. them, they sound peculiar. They sound uh, obscure. This is maybe not the best time to talk about it, but 
But it's one thing that I love that Wolf does is you mentioned describing when he does these things, um, especially when he presents something as, you know, matter of fact, whether it's the flyer in chapter one, um, he doesn't come out and stop and sort of make you focus on it. It's always something that is presented as, you know, very normal to the person. Like in that sentence, the way he says it is in our Madachin Tower, a certain bar of iron thrust from a bulkhead at the height of a man's groin. He's not sitting there specifically describing the bulkhead. He's describing this piece of iron, right? And But it's just like, oh, let me point out this iron that's on the bulkhead over there. The thing that you really should be paying attention to right there, of course, is that he just said bulkhead, um, you know, And but it's just presented as, as sort of common knowledge. And I think it's things like that that make it so easy to miss. Well, he likes telling his stories in first person, the, but he never breaks character. I guess that's part of the flavor. Of pretty much all of the stories is that yeah. he, he he adopts a perspective and he sticks with it. I remember one time someone talking about that if normal modern writing were written the way a lot of science fiction is written, you'd have a guy. He, I got in my car, my 1958 Chevrolet with new air conditioning controls on directly on the dash. I put it in fifth gear that branched off of fourth and fifth, and you know it would just go on and on where you describe every little detail of technology that's quite obvious to the person who is telling the story. But, uh, but Wolf, yeah, but Wolf doesn't do that. He makes us try to see things from their eyes. Which means glossing over all kinds of background things. Exactly. Because we don't notice it when we're in that same situation. You asked about the Madison Tower. One thing I think is interesting here is that the chapter really has two parts. Um, and the second part is the really dramatic part that we get referred to in the first chapter, um, but he doesn't even start with that dramatic part. The first, the first half of the chapter is exposition, is background. Severian's actually even talking about his childhood, and it's only after that that we find out that right before this whole thing with Vodalus that just happened, Severian had a rather important experience. <laughs> and um, <laughs> do you want to jump straight to do it out of order just a little bit and talk about the river? Yeah. Okay. We know he nearly drowned. And now he says that he never went to the Yule again after that day. On that point, some people do say that that's either a lie or another memory fail, because of course he does come back to the river. He has to cross it to get out and he rides on it again. But I think it's pretty clear that what he means here is that he doesn't come back with the other boys to go swimming because he mentions, you know, they commented on it a couple times and that Yachty even guessed the reason. So I think he just means with the other apprentices. The Gyol is bordered on either side with stone. And its surface is covered in nenophars. Nenophars are a blue blossomed water lily. Usually its name is applied to the da 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 dum Egyptian lotus, which is connected to resurrection. So, thinking about those, uh, the nenophars, I looked for all kinds of pictures of lotuses and uh, water lilies and things like that. It was really hard to find straight blue ones. Um, there were a few. So, this is a total tangent, but one thing I started thinking about was, okay, anytime that he mentions colors, we have a red sun, which is darker. I started to really wonder, okay, when Severian presents a color, is that actually the color that we recognize with that? Um, Wow, (laughs) that would be rough. I mean, that might be reading too far, but I was really thinking, okay, everything's kind of red shifted a little bit. (laughs) Um, And so I was thinking, so for him to call the, the flower blue, does that mean that you know, it, it really is a different color um, or what he's seeing as blue is something else. And and I didn't actually work it out yet. And I'm not sure that that actually works out perfectly. But but it did make me wonder because there are a number of times the color comes up in this. Chapter. Well, the choice of the color. Yeah, the choice of the color is kind of 
interesting. He mm-hmm. because why? Why make it blue? He doesn't. Blue. Have, it could be many colors. Lotuses are generally white, right? White, yeah, white. So, um, and I think one thing that you know, with the benefit of hindsight and having read a whole lot of other stuff, and you know, I'll just leave a plug in here with some other things that I know you thought about and read about. Um, blue and green yes. are important colors yeah. in this chapter. Um, the Nenophars are blue. And Juturna is green. You know, when we finally see the ending come up, she, oh. her face is as green as moonshine, you know, like the, oh, like yes. green moonshine. you know, I've, I've, I've read this so many times. I've never even put those two together, even though, and I've, I've compiled lists of all the places <laughs> that blue and green shows up. In some other stuff that you talk about, you talk about what, you know, not only just the fact that, that we'll, will often pair blue and green together. And of course you have short sun where there are planets just called blue and green, but. And instead of Cerberus, we have planets that are, yeah, that are blue, exactly. and blue, blue and green. And one thing that I think that's also something that, that may not happen all the time, but often blue and green are sort of coded as if not quite good and evil, at least sort of like advanced and degenerate or something like that. Um, and so I was just trying to figure out, okay, knowing that Wolf has this blue and green pair, um, Juturna has saved Severian and she's green. Eventually the green man is going to be the one who is, you know, a, an evolved form of humanity. The lotuses are blue and Severian talks about them as even though he's about to die underneath them, he kind of refers to them and, and he even says, he says, when I think of my own death or the death of someone who has been kind to me or even the death of the sun, the image that comes to my mind is that of the Nenephar with its glossy pale leaves and azure flower. It's an ambiguous memory because it's of his own death, but then a death of someone who was kind to him, which could be a good thing, but also be very sad. Um, and so it seems like blue in this case I don't know. It seems like it's supposed to be pretty negative, <laughs> um, I would think. And then later, Juturna is the one who saves him. She is green. And so that's a good thing that she saves him. But we also find out, of course, that the Undines are they're, they're the enemy of the Autark. They're the wives of Abaya, right? Yeah. And against the, the new son. No real point to that other than to say <laughs> that, um, you know, the fact that blue and green are paired here and, and the ambiguity of sort of figuring out, you know, we'll is blue or green a better color? You know, is there one that you would want to have? Um, I just found it interesting that it's not, that, that we don't get that. It's not like in Short Sun where, you know, green is dangerous, blue is beautiful. Well, you know, Fifth Head of Cerberus, St. Anne is green. And it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a fairyland mm-hmm. place where St. Croix is, is blue and it's kind of more urban and, you know, more Earth-like. But, um, and then green in the Book of the Short Sun is a dangerous jungle and blue is settled. I don't know. To think if there's a, if there's a pattern to that. So that made me stop too and think, how does Severian actually think of the Nenophars here? Um, he says he never came back to the river because of the flowers. And he says that Yada had guessed that, um, that it was because of the Nenophars. And other people thought he was just afraid of the water, but it was really the flowers that scared him and that kept him away. But once you find out that, you know, this is the, this is a lotus, this is a flower that is a symbol of rebirth and a symbol of, um, you know, something that always can return, that can always repurify itself. Um, and it's also, you know, this is a point where, where Severian has not only suffered something scary, but he's also been, you know, saved at the same time. Um, that made me wonder, like, like, it seems like if, if, 
the lotus is traditionally this kind of peaceful promise of a kind of ongoing eternity or ongoing regeneration, then why is it something that scares them so much? Yeah, that's really, I, I, yeah, I, I tell you the truth, I've never re- put the two, the blue blossoms of the water lily and her green face together. Although, why wouldn't I? Okay, I got us way off track. So let's get back to the purple flowers of the necropolis. Uh, he says that most people consider them ugly, but Severian says he likes them. The necropolis has never seemed a city of death to me. I know it's purple roses, which other people think so hideous, shelter hundreds of small animals and birds. The executions I have seen performed and performed myself are often no more than a tread, a, a butchery of human beings who are, for the most part, less innocent and less valuable than cattle. When I think of my own death or the death of someone who has been kind to me, or even the death of the sun, the image that comes to my mind is that of the Nenephar, with its glossy, pale leaves and azure flower. Under flower and leaves are black roots, as fine and strong as hair, reaching down into the dark waters. It's an insight into his character that he says, when I think of the death of someone who is my own death or the death of someone who has been kind to me. So it's bittersweet uh, or sad. He thinks of the Nenophars and it's beautiful, but it's also, you know, he doesn't speak of someone I love, which is an insight into his own personality. He talks about how that the the flowers shelter, you know, hundreds of small animals. And so it's not, it's not an image of death for him. Right. Which, well, because it seems odd because then he does go on to say, well, it is an image of death, but it's good death. <laughs> or at least it's not, it's not, it's not tragic death in, um, in different ways. Yeah, he, he likes them because they remind him of his own death or the death of a nice person or the death of the sun. It's very morbid. But what do you expect from a kid who hangs out in a mausoleum? I guess the thing to take away from this is that Severian is not presenting death early in this book as particularly tragic. He hasn't really explained why yet, but even though he can seem very cold and he does talk about butchery of human beings, there's still something about death that holds promise that he's going to explore. So they they go to the gill to swim. There are other groups hanging out on the banks and no one invites them because they're torturers, but they don't feel comfortable telling these baby torturers to get lost either. So the boys pick a place And whoever is there eventually just wanders off, leaving the spot to them. And this time, Severian dives into the water, as he has so many other times, and he gets lost in the darkness under the roots. He gets tangled in the tendrils of the roots. He soon knows, he knows that he will soon drown, and he hears a clanging. He sees a vision of Master Malrubius, who had died several years earlier, waking them up in the morning by banging a spoon on, as we said, the bulkhead of their room. He's banging for Severian to wake up, and he's lying in his cot, but he's unable to move. Marobius is looking for him, but he can't find him because Severian is on a table in one of the cells below the, quote, examination room, the torture chamber, looking up at a gray ceiling, gray, metal metal ceilings. He says, I lay there on my back, looking up at the gray ceiling. A woman cried, but I could not see her. 
and I was less conscious of her sobs than the ringing, ringing, ringing of the spoon. Darkness closed over me, but out of the darkness came the face of a woman, as immense as the green face of the moon. It was not she who wept. I could hear the sobs still, and the face was untroubled, and indeed filled with that kind of beauty that hardly admits of expression. Her hands reached toward me, and at once I became a fledgling I had taken from its nest on my finger, for her hands were each as long as the coffins in which I sometimes rested in my mausoleum. So one thing I just wanted to say about that sentence that I think is so cool is that he immediately becomes like a fledgling, like a very young bird. But then he describes her fingers also as the coffin. And so it's so to me, that's just so cool that in that one sentence, you have this image of youth and death, like right there. All oh, this wow. Moment, yeah. Which if this is, you know, like a moment of resurrection of him being brought back to life works perfectly. But yeah, I just wanted to point that out that that's one of my favorite sentences from this. And this is the first time that he mentions that the moon is green. Yes. And he just kind of, it just moves along and we'll we'll have someone spell it out for us later on when he goes to the library. And again, is another one of those moments where you're supposed to be surprised by a giant face that's right there. And the fact that he says the moon is green is just, you know, again, sort of common knowledge yeah. for, for Severian. Yeah. So fun. I definitely didn't think of it a moment when I said it. It never occurred oh, no. to me that, wait a minute, I think I've never seen a green moon. Her hands are almost two meters long. She grabs him and flings him down, what he thinks is downward to the muddy bottom of the river. And then he bursts the bottom of the river to the surface of the river. He got confused about up and down and you couldn't see the surface through the Nenophars. Drota grabs him by the hair and drags him to the shore. Although he's conscious, he requires mouth-to-mouth from Drota and Rosha to to breathe on his own. A woman brings him something, soup or tea, but it is so hot he can't drink it, and later notices that it scalded his lips where he had tried. Everyone is shocked over how Severian flew up out of the water. I guess he looked like a dolphin or something. Mm -hmm. Severian says he saw Master Malrubius, and an old man asks Rocha who Malrubius is, and he explains that he was the master of the torturers, and he's now dead. And the man says, not a woman? Blah, 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 blah. Right. So, of course, there's supposed to be, you know, other people are aware that, that there's no yeah, there yeah. are undines in the river, um, uh, or, or at least legends about, right. about them have been passed around. So it takes a long time before Severian is able to get up and walk home. And that is why in chapter one, they were late getting back home that night. So this brings up a lot of questions that I know people have argued about for a long time about a couple things. First is, did Severian actually die here? Was Juturna then the one who we, we don't get her name Juturna here, but we, we find out later it's Juturna. Was she the one that brought him back with something else doing it? And you had mentioned before that when we were talking that there is a scene in earth of the new sun where Juturna shows him the, uh, the skeleton, or is it just a skull? No, he's just walking along in the bottom of the, it's after the flood of the earth and he's walking oh, right, along right. the bottom and he comes across uh, the skeleton of a, of a young boy. Right. And he imagines that you know this could have been a boy just like me and if you've if you've read wolf you know very very much at all then that your mind immediately is going to go to the idea that wait a minute is wolf hinting that this is 
actually him? He does actually say he has a memory of being thrown to the bottom of the river. So, I mean, you know, so maybe he didn't get it wrong. (laughs) Um, but so that's one of the questions, you know, was does Severian actually die Is this metaphorical death? If he was resurrected, how was he resurrected? Was it some other power? Was it Severian himself who was able to resurrect himself? All those questions immediately come up. And there is a scene where somebody where at one point he dies and suddenly and then the, uh, the, the I guess I can't remember which level it is. The Hiragramatis uh, basically creates a duplicate of him and resurrects him and he continues on his journey and which once again leads to the idea that he's he could be he could have done that many times yeah so the other thing that comes up is that um well first of all the question is the vision that he has in master mel rubius was this a hallucination or is all of that dream and vision that's going on something else because we find out later that there is an eidolon or an aquaster um of mel rubius that's Right. Wandering around, <laughs> you know, and um, and one of the questions is, is what he sees actually that same yeah. uh, Mal Rubius? And uh, but then also the question of what, well, what is it that he's dreaming about here? Um, why the clanging and why was it a spoon that Mal Rubius is banging things with? Who's the woman who he hears crying? You know, is that supposed to be sort of a premonition of Thecla? Or his mother yeah. is another, another a memory. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And what I think is, too, is that it's a woman crying. Um, well, actually, you know, now that you mentioned that, that if it could be his mother, that actually works even better if you immediately then have Jaterna show up as a woman who is connected to, you know, a sort of new moment of life, because then it means she's also sort of like another mother, you know, who's who's in some ways, you know, giving him life again. If you were to take a few cognitive leaps and mm-hmm. say, okay, so... Severian died when she he has a memory of her flinging him down to the bottom of the uh, of the river. But then he he has a memory of being thrown up into the, mm-hmm. the into the top. Uh, so imagine him at an, an examination room, and he sees Mount. He's being told, "Wake up, wake up, wake up!" And he hears crying, which could just as well be uh, Jaterna or someone else crying over his you know the fact that he's dead. The, uh, in which case, all of this is not just a hallucination, but a, an actual memory. Reading at this time, that was my my sort of assumption. It felt to me like this has to be memories that he's going on. Partly, if for no other reason, than also because the first sentence of the chapter is memory oppresses me. You know, and oh, so yeah. everything about this made me think, okay, it's not a dream. It's not a hallucination. It's not a metaphorical thing of what's going on that these are probably just actual memories that he's having at that moment. Maybe, you know, but it did make me start to think, okay, so is that the same Severian? You know, is this a, is this a different one who has been resurrected a, a second time? Um, I don't know. But, but um, yeah, but, but that was one thing I felt more sure about this time, that what he's doing here is having an actual memory. That would be very apt because it is so, it is probably more common than not that you would, that, that Wolf will have a character say something that everyone takes to be a metaphor or a hallucination, but is an actual, but he's, but he means it literally. So what I want to do is find out when did these things happen? <laughs> like where, you know, what, so it, it, which, you know, especially if, you know, asking about his resurrection gets us into those questions of, well, have there been multiple Severians, multiple resurrections, especially if you're reading this for the first time, you're not at all prepared to know, you know, where in any kind of timeline, you know, he might've had that memory. Exactly. But that's one thing I'm going to be looking out for. 
you want to talk about Chiturna a little bit or you want to talk about something? Yeah. Else? So we don't get her name. We don't even know anything about the Undines, really. Right. But we, but we eventually find out she's the, she's like a wife or a consort mm-hmm. of, an, mm-hmm. which who knows what that means, of an alien power named Abaya. And right. Abaya is, the name comes from a, a, a Malaysian mytho- mythological monster. It's a giant eel that lives at the bottom of, of lakes and uh, is said to consider all creatures in the lake its children and protects them furiously against anyone who would harm or disturb them. So the, uh, the aliens aren't, uh, are typically thought to be named after monsters, but uh, they're, they're complicated. And all throughout, when you get to the long sun, short sun cycle, the alien uh, being Skilla, it becomes something of an ally. Abaya obviously is, is his, he's complicated. It's not sure, it's not really clear what his relationship is. Um, Erebus does seem to be always uh, treated as a much more darker force. The, um, as his name would, 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 would fit for. And I have to just throw this out there, even though they're giants, but it always also made me wonder, is this where Wolf is doing a moment of Lovecraft? Just especially since they're based in Antarctica, <laughs> you, know, you know, that immediately. They are so Lovecraftian in an evil guest, which is um, he openly, he, I think he may even dedicate the book to, uh, in part to, to Lovecraft. You have these creature, you have a giant undersea creature. He, he just like, just as in this case, you know, uh, Vodalus. Uh, will later uh, claim to work for Erebus and Abaya. And, you know, even in that novel, you ha- they have all of these agents in the government, people, different people who are working for for some alien power or another. And, but this whole thing kind of reminds me also of the Latro stories, the Soldier in the Mist, Soldier of Arite, where the, all the gods seem to be trying to recruit him to their cause in a war that is just out of sight. You don't really know what their motivations are, but you know that they want him on their side. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to say about this part is that there is a thematic repetition that comes up over and over here. I'm still stuck on the idea that the first chapter is called Resurrection and Death, um, and that there's so many things, even still in this chapter, that um, are always talking about how there's constant resurrection or there's constant sort of cycles of destruction and creation. By putting the Vodalus chapter first and then coming to this one, we kind of get a sort of a little circle in the narrative here that we move forward and we move back to move forward again. Something about that just seems right, that since this book is about sort of cycles of you know degeneration and then needing to be renewed, that the fact that we get so many images of that, not just with the resurrection itself, but in, in all kinds of, even at the sentence level, like the one I mentioned where in one sentence, he is both a young creature and lying in a coffin at the same time that that's there. And even to go back as well to, we haven't really talked about this and this is an earlier part, but when he says that when he was young, he always had two thoughts that always obsessed him. One was that time would end and everything, um, the sun would finally wink out. But then the other thing is that there was a light that was constantly sort of engendering life. Um, And that he has both of those thoughts that constantly obsess him. And it's not one or the other that's more important, but that both are there. And that, you know, is just so central to all kinds of things that the book is going to be about. I write for a living myself. I write, I write nonfiction. I write uh, technical documentation. Mm -hmm. And I can see in the, in these first two chapters, Wolf having written them all probably mostly in 
chronological order. And then he's just cutting them into pieces and moving them. I'm going to move this here. I'm going to move this here. I want this particular beat here. The, uh, I mean, you can really, you can see a lot of revision work in these two chapters, a lot of the, the, the scissoring uh, and, and cut marks and fingerprints all over it. And he does say too in the interviews that he had all four books written before he even sent the first to be published. Yeah, because he, he wanted to, he wanted to make sure it would come out the way he wanted it to, basically, which is, which is, again, probably a little shocking to anyone who got to the end of that book and said, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> this book didn't end. He said yeah. he was supposed to become the conciliator or the, the new son or something. Well, good. Well, let's go back then to the first part because we talked about the resurrection and the whole scene in the river. So let's talk about the more expositional uh, portion. Um, and it starts with this wonderful sentence, memory oppresses me. <laughs> well, not as much as he supposes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at the time the story starts, the guild has two masters and less than 20 journeymen. That's apparently fewer than it used to be. So this is a less interesting time. The chapter starts with an explanation of how Severian came to be in the Torturers Guild. In winter, beggars come to their tower hoping to get food and shelter for their willingness to inflict torture. And sometimes they bring dead animals as work samples, but they never get admitted. The only way that they accept new members is at birth or very early. When condemned are sent to them, sometimes they get children along with it. Are, are whole families being sent to these guys? Um, That's one of the, the interesting questions, like, because if you just think about, well, how do they get that would be a lot of pregnant women that they'd have to get, <laughs> you know, if, if they could only have uh, or pregnant women. Or if it's shorter than a man's groin, they keep them. So he, even if they're, you know, two or three or something like that, then they'll keep them. If it's a girl, then they send them to the witch's keep. <laughs> yeah. And we start to find out here about other guilds. So we learn about the witches and this is just more of the world building. I think that's what one thing this we could probably agree that the whole first half of this is really more about world building than even though we do get some information about Severian, we're really getting a lot more about Ness. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of exposition in this. Yeah, even some history. We, we learn about Yamar the or Imar. I never know how to pronounce Yamar it. Yamar the, the almost, almost just. just. <laughs> Which is it's funny because he talks about him. He's like as as you know a leader that people should know. But then later on, he says that that was countless hundreds years before. Right. He didn't even know <laughs> exactly how long ago it was. Which is fun because there you start to get that sense of, I, I guess, deep time. So the witches, I guess the witches depend pretty heavily on the Torturers Guild as well in order to get their new recruits. Because when they get a woman who's pregnant and then they perform a cesarean, which is potentially in part where Severian gets his name. The Torturers used to have both men and women, but he says, but Imar the almost just observing how cruel the women were and how often they exceeded the punishments he had decreed, ordered that there should be women among the torturers no more. And this is how Wolf gets accused of being a misogynist. But And I wonder too, one thing that stood out to me this time that I never noticed was how there's another image right there that comes out that he may be suggesting that the, the torturers are foolishly masculine in certain ways. And and the thing that stood out to me was it's like how they choose the boys, how they, it, that, that what he says that they, there's in our Madison tower, there's a certain bar of iron that thrusts from the bulkhead at the height of a man's groin and kids who are shorter than that, they keep. Well, to say that there's a bar of iron sticking out at the height of a man's groin it's a pretty obvious 
what you're supposed to be sort of imagining there. And to say that we, we, you know, we judge people yeah. as whether they're going to come to our, our place by, you know, by this penis is <laughs> just sort of, it, it makes me think, you know, is there, is there a suggestion <laughs> here that he's, that he's aware of sort of this gender stuff that's going you on? You must be no higher than the bar of iron. It's funny. Um, but it's also, it also, I think undercuts that thing about, you know, Oh, the women were just bad that, I mean, also he says, this is a degenerate age. Yeah. I and mean, that's one of the lines that at one point, well, it's not, it's a, it's a dubious criticism to say that you're unsuitable to be a torturer. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so yeah, so that's one passage that I think gets thrown out a lot of times as one of the, uh, the sort of areas where his misogyny uh, becomes an issue, um, but also with some of the characterizations later on. But I think, I, I, you know, and, and I'll still be out there. I think there are some places where it may be a justified criticism. This is not one, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and even then it's, it's, there's a lot going on <laughs> is I guess one way to put it that, that, I mean, I don't think it, I don't think it, even Wolf, I don't think would be, I don't think there's a stretch to say that he was probably in the end, a little more fond of traditional male and female roles and, and sort of gender ideas um, with some things. And I think he'd be fine with that. So there is that sort of strain to him, but it's, it's not what I think a lot of people will complain about because I think the complaints are often too simplistic. Well, so I mean, there are some places, and we'll get to them, I know, where you can say, wait, <laughs> why is this scene in here? But I think, too, we were talking about first person before. Um, my reaction with Wolf is always, well, let's give him benefit of the doubt. And if there is a passage that is clearly sort of anti-feminist or something like that, let's assume that he did that intentionally to tell us something about the character. And let's see what, what happens then. Yeah. Like, is that something that the character is going to have to deal with later on? Um, and that'll come back to bite him. And that actually, I think that happens in a few places. Well, he's, yes, this narrator is not a perfect man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I think that is something that's important to bring up just because it is probably the most common criticism of Wolf. And this is one area that since it's right there at the beginning, yeah. that gets mentioned a lot. So, yeah, no one knows. So no one knows because of the way they come into the Torture's Guild. No one knows their lineage. Everyone imagines that he's the son of an exultant. And Severian likes to think that he is. He feels like he's taller than average. But we will find out that he is not an exultant. We get some layout of the general area of the Torturer's Tower. There's an old yard next to the tower where Severian played as he was little. The Witch's Keep is northeast of the yard, adjacent to the, the Torturer's area. There's something called a Grand Court that is part of the Witch's area near the witch's keep. It's interesting that the witches live in a keep and not a tower. I don't know mm -hmm. if that means mm -hmm. it's a different kind of structure or not. The Madachin tower is up against the curtain wall that encircles the citadel. Then there's space between the Madachin tower and the red tower and the bear that are apparently also up against the curtain wall. The red tower are the fighters and the bear are animal handlers that raise fighting animals. In the space between the Madison Tower and the Red Tower, the curtain wall is collapsed. It's fallen slabs of unsmeltable gray metal, which sounds very sturdy. Sturdy and science fiction-y. And, and I, was, I was thinking about that word, like unsmeltable, because that's one of those points where I think you're supposed to, you're assuming fantasy because of Citadel and then you go to science fiction. But then I was thinking unsmeltable, um, like what that actually means. 
And it's not like, I think when I first read it, even on the reread, I just thought unmeltable, like, you know, super sturdy. Um, but unsmeltable means something different. It means that you you couldn't make the metal. <laughs> you couldn't smelt it. You couldn't. Well, it's a little bit like unmeltable in that you couldn't take it and remake it into something else. It's right. You're going to heat it up and heat it up and heat it up and, and maybe it just never even gets hot. Right. So, but that's another thing that sort of makes me think, is this alien, you know, is this some kind mm -hmm. of, you know, or future tech, you know, that's, that's going way different, but it's just another one of those moments feels like a key into a whole bigger world. Given that there is this br breakdown in the wall in the, uh, that leads to the necropolis, right. <laughs> why do they even have a guard <laughs> at the Barbican? Exactly. Anyone can wander in. And all kinds of questions. It seems so, you know, so impervious and yet something has knocked it over, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, and they've built this whole, the whole Citadel walled up obviously as a protective thing and it didn't work. <laughs> so yeah, you wonder like what, what were these creatures? Is that the undines? Is that the monsters? Uh, yeah. Or maybe it's just even age. I don't know if the ground shifts and even you know, no matter how strong the metal is, it's going to, it's going to crack and break. The earth is, is bigger. And the guard at the at the guard at the at the Barbican, um, still guarding when they've got this big gaping hole in the wall. I've mm -hmm. worked for a lot of established uh, companies that have a lot of procedures in place, and no one really knows why they're there anymore, but they still yeah. do them. <laughs> so there's a place called on called the Bell Keep by the by the river. It has a cistern of water under it, and where they where they swim. And when they couldn't go to the Gyol River, and they're not allowed to swim there, but that's you know that's part of the fun. They aren't allowed to go to the Gyol either because they aren't allowed outside the Citadel. He says, when we passed those rusting portals, we felt we were for the first time truly outside the Citadel. That's the the Necropolis Gate, and thus in undeniable disobedience of the rules that we were that were supposed to govern our comings and goings. We believed or pretended to believe we would be tortured if our older brothers discovered the violation. In actuality, we would have suffered no worse than a beating. Such is the kindness of the torturers whom I was subsequently to betray. Foreshadowing. So the other thing that's sort of interesting about all of this is that he talks about they were not allowed to leave in certain ways and it was partly for their own protection because people hated them. So we learn more about, you know, a little bit about the society. But he also says at another point that he he thinks that they were kept around to, you know, divert hatred and fear away from the autark. Mm -hmm. I think it does show that that he was very aware of, even at a young age, of certain sort of cracks in the society. In other words, he didn't quite believe in all the tales that were being told to him. <laughs> Right. About the world. The people fear them, but they also hate them. And but whenever they would go out into the town they, and they would have a famous criminal, then everyone would would shout recommendations to them for relationship. Right. <laughs> most of most of them were obscene and many impossible. So the Citadel is kind of a city within a city. The outer city is mm -hmm. called Nessus. Now Severian breaks off. So he starts talking about his childhood. Since the Acropolis was so accessible, it was his playground. So there were centuries at graves, but mostly only at the newer graves. Vodalus's people only care about the fresh corpses. 
The necropolis is said to be the oldest graveyard in Nessus, but Severian says that's not true. But it is really old. That one part I want to say one thing about, because I feel like that that little section, the way he says it, is incredibly wolfy um, and, <laughs> and something of a key. But he says, just to read that, is our necropolis is said to be the oldest in Nessus. That is certainly false. But the very existence of the error testifies to a real antiquity that the Autarchs weren't buried there even when the Citadel was their stronghold and he goes on and on. But that kind of phrasing of saying one thing, saying it's false and giving you reason to know it's false, but then finding another way that it's true, just not in a way that you necessarily thought of, that's very Wolfian. And I think it's so cool that he just puts that right there. The Citadel uh, used to be the stronghold of the Autark, but no Autarchs are buried there. We do know from in the Book of the Short Sun, they go and look for the the mausoleum of the family of Typhon. So his family is buried there, but then he's pre-Autark. The exultants have always been buried at their estates. The prime real estate in the Acropolis is near the Citadel Curtain Wall, and that's where all the armagers and optimates are buried. And an armager in medieval times was a knight's attendant. It was literally his arm bearer. And an optimate was a conservative senatorial party. The, the name means, you know, the best sort of people. Perhaps uh, optimates are a kind of political right. class. And I think that's another thing that's really important is that we start to see pretty quickly that this is a hierarchical culture. There are classes, but everything, even where they're buried, has a certain status associated with it. One thing um, that I think is interesting about that is the Nessus then follows right down through this. And it talks about how it runs down at the bottom through the potter's fields and through the poorer parts. One thing that was, I had never really thought before. Um, if all of that is running downhill, then when they go down out to the potter's fields to swim in Nessus, they're swimming in some filthy, filthy water <laughs> yeah. um, because that's, you know, of course people would be using that, the river to wash away trash and sewage and, I don't know. Can't, for me, it kind of complicates the resurrection scene a little bit because you usually think of a baptism or something like that happening in very pristine water. But this mm -hmm. is murky, murky stuff, not just because of all the hairs of the nanofars, but also trash and sewage. Filthy water doesn't really stop uh, young people from swimming. <laughs> uh, I, I grew up about two blocks from Lake Erie in the 70s, and we swam there all the time. So just just saying. But yeah, so the so he describes all of the the different levels um, of the graves. So yeah, we come back to this this society that is highly highly structured. Obviously, one one thing I think the way I feel like he's emphasizing that is not just to teach or not just to say that that it's hierarchical, but actually it sort of has a sort of stagnant feel to it. Um, that especially once he describes how people are put in the guilds, it's sort of like, there you are, that's your life. Fate sort of assigns it to you and you just stay there. So it seems like a very sort of a very dead kind of system. Yeah. Even as you, when you die, it's very clear where you stand. Exactly. The graveyard is full of cypresses. I don't know if the cypresses are like the Louisiana swamp kind or the manicured topiary kind. The boys, of course, as we said, don't know their lineage, but then make up their past to fill in the blanks. Yada drew a coat of arms from one of the northern clans above his bed. A Severian adopted a coat of arms that he found at a mausoleum and where he hung out and he decided that was his own. They all everyone had their own private haunts in the in the necropolis. 
this coat of arms was a fountain rising above waters and a ship volant. Uh, it's a technical term, <laughs> volant. Uh, it means it's from heraldry. It just means basically means flying. Why not just say flying? And at the bottom, a rose. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you have to stop here for a while. And, you know, these are the kinds of things that he chooses. Um, but, of course, everything that he, we said in the first chapter about how symbols make us what we are, to choose these symbols is obviously incredibly significant. So just to stop for a little bit with the three of them, the fountain rising above waters. I mean, one thing, too, I think is interesting is these aren't necessarily, to me at least, perfectly clear images apart from the rose that the fountain rising above waters and the ship volant the way he describes them are ambiguous in a way that is always a little frustrating to me but also kind of telling um, or at least significant because a fountain rising above waters i think there's a, been a lot of people who assume that really what that is is ultimately kind of a symbol of the new sun coming through or eventually i know some people have talked about how that they feel like this is somehow connected to the black hole that's supposed to go inside the sun to uh, to bring it back to life. The white uh, hole. The white the hole. The white hole. Yeah, excuse me. Yes, exactly. The white hole. And that is absolutely part of it. But of course, also a fountain rising above waters, like an ex- like huge waters, can can stand for the flood. Well, the um, fountain, is the fountain underneath the waters? Is that that's that's what I, that's one of my questions. I mean, he says they were a fountain yeah. rising above water. So is the fountain. The actual water, like a spray, like a huge spray of water coming up, is the fountain itself like a structure that's that's coming above the waters. Um, again, he doesn't describe them; he just sort of says these things and moves on. So the same thing, like a ship volant, like you mentioned, he puts volant in in italics. One of the few things he does, he throws it in italics, which to me sort of initially makes me think exactly like you said that he's just sort of talking about it like a technical term. But to be a ship flying is then. I think initially we're all going to think of ships with sails, but we've also just in the last chapter seen a ship that actually does fly, um, a spaceship. So we don't know what kind of ship this actually is. He mentions these three things, but then leaves it really unclear as to exactly how we're supposed to picture them, I think. First of all, when you get to the end of these four volumes, it's not going to be perfectly clear what these symbols mean. Yeah. Although he, he talks about them like we're supposed to be told. The fountain, okay, that's the that's the white hole, but we don't, that's not really spelled out to us until we get to Earth of the New Sun, mm-hmm. which was was not in, originally intended to be explained. Right. The waters, I think uh, Michael Andre Dreesi wrote an article. I think it was in the same one from that the, in the same uh, magazine where uh, Gaiman first talked about how to read Wolf, where he talks about what Wolf expects of his readers, and this is the first reference to the fact that there's going to be a flood. But although there's a lot of little hints like this, that the coming of the, of the new sun was going to cause these gravitational waves that would, that would flood the earth, you couldn't settle on that in exclusion of all the other possibilities. And so you have a fountain. Okay. We now know the, 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 uh, probably the, uh, the white hole, the waters, the flood, the flying ship. Well, we'll encounter that flying ship at the in earth of the new sun he'll ride on that and at the bottom of rose which is i guess a sun which is, wolf has said that's a sun symbol but what's really interesting here is the question is he looking at his real his real coat of arms when he sees these devices or do they become his coat of arms because he've encountered them 
In, in other words, does he go back in time, and this is his real uh, coat of arms, or does he and die, and is this is, is he buried there? He mentions that he he feels like the the guy looks a lot like him. Yeah, that he looks like him. Yep. Although he, when he describes him, he looks like any sort of a uh, mummified dead man. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. But or is he or, or is it because these symbol he's encountered these symbols and he attaches their meaning throughout his life and it affects mm-hmm. his life. And once again, we yeah. have the situation of symbols creating us. And I think that's you know, especially for the first time you read it, it's still an open question. But I actually do kind of, I mean, I still like to read this without Earth of the New Sun in mind if I can, um, because it just it sometimes things about Earth feel like cheating. <laughs> I don't know, but um, but I want to know too. You know, what are we supposed to think when we read this for the first time? Um, you know, how are we supposed to react to these symbols after? You know, like you said, just having in the last chapter, we were told that symbols make us, even if we don't understand what they are. Um, and and that's pretty significant to me because I, I feel like it, at least at the first time you read through, it's almost as if saying maybe there wasn't initially here a destiny, but Severian started because he took these not just not just because he randomly took these symbols on, but but because he felt like he had some kind of reason to choose these or these these were, were symbols that would have some resonance with something that he felt like he needed or his world needed or something like that. No, as he says in the beginning, there, it's possible I had some presentiment of my presentiment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The door of the mausoleum is off its hinges. There are two empty coffins and three unopened ones. There's an open coffin with the remains of a man in it, as, as we said. He's, he says he has heavy lidded eyes, and he thinks, "Oh, that looks like me." He's got a straight nose, deep set eyes. Well, that's what every what they all look like eventually. <laughs> sunken, sunken cheeks. Oh, well, at least we get an idea of what Severian looks like. Yeah. yeah. While he's sitting out there, there's a little scene where he, that he describes looking out the little window at animals going about their business. I have a theory about this scene. It kind of ties into the, your question about gates uh, in chapter one. Um, and so you know, maybe one day we'll go over it. But after that, he goes into a paragraph that's all foreshadowing. A, a moment suffices to describe these things, for which I watched so long. The decades of a sorrows would not be enough for me to write all they meant to the ragged apprentice boy I was. Two thoughts that were nearly dreams, obsessed me and made them infinitely precious. The first was that some not distant time, time itself would stop. The colored days that had so long been drawn forth like a chain of conjurer's scarves come to an end. The sullen sun wink out at last. The second was that there existed somewhere a miraculous light, which I sometimes conceived as a candle, sometimes as a flambeau that engendered life in whatever object it fell upon, so that a leaf plucked from a bush grew slender legs and waving feelers, and a rough brown bush opened black eyes and scurried up a tree. So I really like that part. Um, I think it's, it's still a little weird that a little kid would be having these kinds of, you know, like, extreme sort of metaphysical types of uh, things, which he says are interestingly revisions and, and um, that were nearly dreams, but not dreams. <laughs> that That's another sort of good fun way to, to put that. Um, one seems the, the fact that time would end and everything would just stop 
to me, it seems like that I get where that comes from, from how he's just spent all this time describing his society of how stagnant it is, how, uh, you know, there's really not going to be much change in his life. It seems like things have kind of been the way they are for hundreds, for countless hundreds of years. And so the idea that time would stop seems kind of like a it's already in many ways stopped, <laughs> I think, for him, that they're pretty much already at the death. It's the second one, though, that, of course, I kind of want to know, well, where did that come from? Was it just hope? Or was it that presentiment? I don't know. I really feel this time like we're like Wolf is sort of putting it out there in a couple ways with the symbols, with with this of really asking in what way is Severian destined for what's going to happen? And, you know, or was this was this more chance? I don't know. That That's a bigger question. But but one other thing I do want to point out is that what happens when that miraculous light falls on things is a kind of evolution. From other stuff, we know that, that Wolf was actually really fascinated with different theories of evolution and considered himself a Lamarckian. You know, we don't have to get into a lot of it right now, but Lamarck is basically more about adaptation than the sort of natural selection that Darwin had. Um, the idea that, you know, over centuries, right. if you like if you use, uh, you know, if you use a trait or use an ability, then that's going to get passed on. That, that's Lamarck's idea. So it's more adapting instead of just the chance of natural selection. Yeah, um, but that's not what he gives here, um, because here it's sort of that miracle that vegetable type things become animal. Um, and that's a big jump. <laughs> that's not just evolution. That's that's a huge jump where, you know, a leaf grows legs and feelers and a rough brown brush um, open black eyes and scurried up a tree. And the one thing I think of here, especially with the leaf, is that we we get later that green man where humanity yep. has figured out how to you know survive much better, just living directly off the sun. The reader wouldn't know it the first time going through, but what we have here are two potential futures for Earth. I guess whatever happens to the sun uh, would not matter. You know, it wouldn't wink time itself out. But for for the Earth, it would, and and I think that's supposed to be Master Ash's world, right? He's going to encounter Master Ash, who lives in a in a different timeline where the new sun didn't come, the an alternate future, or this other one with a new sun, and surely somebody who is reading Shadow the Torturer, the first volume in the Book of the New Sun, is going to say, "Oh, okay, now I'm starting to hear reference to this new sun that was in the title." He says, uh, uh, a decades of Asaros would not be long enough for me to write all these men. Asaros cycle is a period that's just under 19 years uh, between successive lunar and solar eclipses that occur when the sun, earth, and moon are in the same positions relative to one another. So the decades of Asaros are, are two, or just under two. He's saying this, that this represents his first 19, 18 years. And at that point, and that, at that point, we go, we head off to the Yule River in in this chapter. So that's a lot. There's a lot packed into one chapter, and, and you know, two separate little chapters. I think is kind of what it feels like. But then, of course, I want to know. Well, we've just talked about how there were two visions that he had, and we also kind of have two parts of this chapter. So it makes me wonder if, in some ways, that that vision, you know, Earth as it is now, is sort of that world where time has stopped. But then we get a story of resurrection where, you know, Severian encounters a giant woman and he's, you know, thrown into the world. Well, that's true. These are two visions, one of death and one of resurrection. Yeah, so it works. And what I think is interesting, too, is the title of the chapter is just Severian. So if you take all the weight of that sort of (laughs) symbolic stuff that we just talked about, maybe the whole chapter has those two... um, Thanks a lot. 
futures. You know, they just keep the earth just sort of stagnates as it is, or it becomes different. This chapter isn't called death and resurrection. And that would seem more logical <laughs> if, if that fits right. Um, instead it's called Severian. And so Severian. Well, if you think about the name, it, it just occurs to me is that it's a name that implies a, a splitting mm-hmm. and Severian represents a division in which things could go one way or another, right. two alternative futures. Right. And I guess it's going to come up when he gets Terminus Est, which uh, supposedly means the line that divides. Line divides. Different kind of severing that happens with that sword for most of its use, of course. <laughs> so that actually makes a lot more sense for why yeah, why this chapter might be called Severian, because that was one thing that was bothering me. <laughs> I mean, of course, it's sort of all about him for the first time. We get his background, so it makes sense to call it Severian. But when the first one just has that obvious sort of symbolic resonance, why is this one just Severian? But thinking about his name and severing, like you said, that makes a lot of sense to me. If you assume that he did die at the bottom of that river mm-hmm. and then he was resurrected in another way, once again, you have the, a meaning to the name Severian there at the bottom of that river. Yeah, it works better than I thought it did. See, I knew there'd be an answer. <laughs> there, there had to be something there. Well, good. Well, that's a lot for chapter two. We're going to let Severian dry out a little bit, and next (laughs) week we'll work on chapter three. So again, please feel free to leave comments, questions, um, disagreements on all the social media that we have, the Twitter account, Rereading Wolf, the Rereading Wolf podcast on Facebook. We'll respond there, but also try to mention you in the podcast and respond to your ideas at that point. It's undoubtable that we got some things wrong here, and I want to hear about them. So please uh, respond and let us know what I did wrong, what I said wrong. Absolutely. Tell us what James said wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And if you like what you hear, leave a rating. Whatever you do, be sure and leave a comment. And if you do, we'll read your review here, just like we said we would for our one review so far at the beginning of the show. And this is from a listener named uh, Marble Fortress. Uh, The reader says... Whether you're reading your first Gene Wolfe story or revisiting an old favorite, this is the book club-style podcast you need in your life. It makes no illusions that it will or that it is indeed possible to avoid spoilers chapter to chapter concerning a writer such as this. And from the first chapter, it is made clear that the reader is expected to know the ending. However, this chosen style only illuminates a book that, if read alone, is strange, winding, mysterious, and very rewarding, if difficult to get through. It is only by putting all the pieces of the novel The Shadow of the Torturer together that the first story can be unfolded. That is the service these hosts provide. Each episode is charming, fascinating, and easy on the ears. Well, that's very gratifying. Very kind. Thank you very much for that. Otherwise, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you in Chapter 3. It's when the body at the bottom That body is my own reflection But it ain't hip to sink that low Unless you're gonna make a resurrection They're always gonna come to your door They're gonna say, they're gonna say It's just a routine inspection But what do you get when you open your door? What you get is just another injection 
And there's always gonna be one more with just a little bit less until the next one. They're waiting shadows and steal light from your eyes. To them, vision's just some costly infection. But you should, you should come with me. I'm the fire, I'm the fire's reflection. I'm just a constant warning, just a constant warning to take the other direction. Mister, I am your connection. Cause when the city drops into the night, before the darkness is one moment of light, that's when everything seems clear. The other side. Well, if we, get, oh, yeah, if we well, get into some sort of rambling wild fight, that's what we're looking for. <laughs> we have to cut something out that we should cut out all of the, the cool exposition.